Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today we have Martin Frost, who is CEO of CMR Surgical, which was Cambridge Medical Robotics. So, Martin, welcome. Let's talk up through till when you started to become entrepreneurial. So, I'm Mancunian from the north of England, like you, Peter. Did a history degree at Cambridge. Last time I did science was when I was 15. So, I think it's fair to say it's a surprise to those teachers who taught me physics and chemistry all those years ago that I'm now running a technology company in Cambridge. That's a big surprise. But I was very much on the art side. So history, languages for me were important. Frankly, left Cambridge and didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point. Went back to Manchester, trained as an accountant, ACMA qualified, and then very quickly joined a broad-based engineering company at that time, which gave me fantastic experience. Was that up north then? That was up north. It was a company called Simon Engineering, which was a diverse engineering business. Actually, they used to build the ladder towers that went on the back of fire engines. They were a huge management contractor, big civil engineering projects, and big in environmental services. And it was that environmental services business that took me and ultimately my family out to France, where I lived for a year, and then out to America, where I lived for three years. And in all of that process... It was the early days of management information systems, and I discovered that actually I was quite good at writing software. Um, So I was responsible for writing all of the management executive information systems that Simon used at that time. And that meant that essentially it just added another string to my bow, IT, finance, languages. It was a great combination of And this was the early 90s by now, was it? This was early 90s. Back to the UK, a couple of years as finance director of a big part of GC Marconi and discovered that whilst the rigour and discipline of GC Marconi taught me a lot, I found the culture inhibiting at that time and then was recruited initially to become CFO of a business then called Scientific Generics Generics Group in Cambridge in the mid to late 90s by some wonderful people who still count amongst the people who've taught me most in business, uh, Gordon Edge, Peter Hyde, Bob Pettigrew, fantastic mentors and leaders. So that brought you back into Cambridge after a 10-year gap late or something? It did, 90s, yeah. yeah. Scientific Generics was a very broad-based consulting, intellectual property, exploitation business. And you stayed about a decade. So why did you leave? What was the next thing that drew you onwards? I was there a decade. People there were fantastic and still are fantastic. But my passion was on the spin-out IP exploitation model. And probably 80% of the people at Sagentia were involved essentially in the consulting part of the business that was important, but it wasn't my particular Mm -hmm. passion. So that's a big reason why I left. The other reason is, and a learning point here is that, you know, at the time it was around £100 million market cap business actually quite complex business, both as a P&L business and a balance sheet 
business and to have a business that's actually that small in the context of London stock market and needing to explain to investors, you know, we had an asset management business with investments, we had a P&L account generating profit from the consultancy. That's just too difficult in a business with that market cap. Was it pulled off the market later? Um, it's still on the market. But we certainly asked ourselves whether the market was the right place to have that business. And it was really on the outturn of those conversations that I decided, actually, what I really wanted to do was to get involved in businesses on my own account and grow them and be responsible for them, good and bad. So did you then become an entrepreneur? Did you form your first business? I did. It's banded around a lot, the word entrepreneur. I sort of call myself a businessman more than an entrepreneur. I think mostly because everything I've done has always involved other people. It's never for me being a one-man show. CMR Surgical is not a one-man show. So it was always a question for me of finding the right people to work with and to grow businesses with. And I've had lots of fun, some success, and learnt also for some things that didn't go well. I think entrepreneurs need to be in teams anyway, two yeah. or three people. And I think the entrepreneur part of it, as opposed to the business part of it, is the risk you're willing to take. Yeah. So did you take a whole chunk of risk after you left? Yeah, absolutely. So certainly things I did. <laughs> I think there was probably a two-year period where, you know, I didn't receive an income at all. You have to be prepared to do that as an yeah, entrepreneur. Yeah. So at that time, I was involved in starting two to three separate businesses, two of which are still absolutely arrive and yeah we'll see i'm still a shareholder in them okay so there's about six years now before you joined cmr yeah any particular companies you want to talk about during that period yeah i think the big theme in my life before medical devices surgical robotics was mobile money mobile money has transformed the lives of 17 18 million people in kenya what a lot of people don't know is that the technology behind mpesa which is the name of the mobile money service in kenya all of that technology was created, built, rolled out, supported from Cambridge. And it has transformed lives. You know, a lot of money was made in the consultancy business at that time. And Red Cloud now takes that torch on as its own product business. You're a founder of that, right? Yeah, I was yeah. a co-founder yeah. of, of that business, right. yeah. Okay. Let's move forward to the business you're involved with now. It has some wonderfully exciting growth. Yeah, it does. CMR was Cambridge Medical Robotics. Yeah. I got involved with co-founder of CMR Surgical actually 18 months before the company was sort of incorporated, started. That's actually how all these companies start, because we had some fantastic ideas about what we'd like to do in this space, informed by already what was a very clear market need, which, for the benefit of listeners, of millions of people who don't get the right sort of surgery all around the world. You know, we had thoughts around that. We had good relationships with surgeons up and down this country recognise the need for a versatile, affordable, effective tool that goes in the hands of a surgeon in the operating room. But the difficulty we had was in order to take that business to where we had a prototype that could then prove we could build a business out of it, that prototype needed millions of pounds. Mm. This is one of the most advanced pieces of medical device equipment in the world. And although personally I'd already raised before that time probably just shy of hundred million pounds in terms of different businesses I'd been involved in around Cambridge actually the task to finance this business was probably the hardest of them all mm. which is ironic sitting here today now we've raised probably 150 million dollars and the first round was angel round the very first round was an angel round looking back on it now Luke Hare's co-founder was particularly friendly with a local author Sophie Hanna and Sophie was good enough on the basis of relationship established around piano lessons and singing <laughs> lessons, would you believe, to put some money into the business. You know, and not a very small amount of money either. Mm. 
it's probably one of the best investments she's ever made. Was she the only investor at that point? As an angel, other than the founders, she was. So you put money in and yeah. Luke put some money yeah. in, okay. That took us to what I would say the grown-up seed round of the company in January 2014, which is sort of four and a half plus years ago now, mm. when we brought into the business essentially Norwegian family office money at that time. So notably not British. Mm. Uh, and that's notwithstanding the fact that I had good relationships with many venture capital companies, mm. asset management equity, private equity houses. You know, it took us 12 months to raise that money. How much was that? Is that in the public domain? Uh, yeah, that was just over three and a half million pounds. Primarily from the Norwegian family? Pretty much 90-odd percent of it okay. from that source. And we took a very pragmatic view to that round. We recognised that in order to build what we always wanted to be a big business in Cambridge, we would need a lot of capital. I've been involved in a, a number of startup spin-out businesses in the UK. Most people spend a lot of time agonising about how little control can they give away in return for how much money can they raise. We actually decided to take a completely different tack at that point, which was we very deliberately wanted to build as big a business as possible to make the pie as big as possible and raise as much money as possible without quibbling as much as I've seen other companies, entrepreneurs do, about how much equity should be kept for the founders so and for the entrepreneurs. So did you sell more than half the equity then? That we round? did. Yeah, that's very unusual. It is. So we gave away majority control, but actually it was majority equity control. And to be fair to Escala, and in particular to a chap called Per Matthew, who's still on our board, they absolutely trusted us with that money. So although they had majority of equity and economic rights in the company, we ran the company. Mm. In fact, I was the only signatory on the bank account of the company for two years. Yeah, we had the minimum number of board meetings, that, yeah, which is one. One a year? <laughs> yeah, one a year. We had one board meeting a year for the first two years. Plus some very efficient management meetings, yeah. one hopes. In local coffee shops, that's true. But again, I think we put a lot of trust in them by giving them majority economic mm. control of the business. And they put a huge amount of trust back in us in the way that the company should run. And we essentially just needed to move very, very fast and be left to get on with it. So and you started with two or three employees when you got the money or three or four? Yeah, that's right. I think we were three or four employees within two months. And then when you raised the next round, how many employees have you got up to at that point? So we raised our Series A financing in, from memory, the late summer of 2015. So 18 months or so. Yeah, when we were approximately 40 people. By that time, we'd already moved to this lovely site that we're looking at. And location and has always been actually very important to us. We've sort of jokingly called, you know, the agricultural shed the equivalent of the Hewlett-Packard garage in Palo Alto. Yeah, I should explain we're about three miles from the centre of Cambridge here and about probably about a mile from the edge of Cambridge. So, yeah. yeah, it's been a fantastic location. Still today, more than half the company cycles to work. I've cycled up the hill from Cambridge to here more times than <laughs> I would like to. Good for you. Yeah, when we leave, I think I'm going to install the defibrillator halfway up the hill. I've sort of <laughs> felt the need of it on many occasions. Your, your donation to society. <laughs> yeah. By the time you get to the second round, the B round, I suppose yeah. we could call it, had you got something there, something that people could see working? Yeah, absolutely. But at that stage, it was one arm. Yeah. So in order to build what is a next-generation surgical robot. There are a number of really important elements of it that we've needed to demonstrate to investors along the way as proof points of our ability to finish the journey. And that was essentially a completely new ground-up design for robotic arm, incorporating all of the electronics within each of the robot arms with the same amount of dexterity and flexibility as your or my human arm. So very important to us. 
is to fit easily and naturally into workflow around the theatre, and that means modelling that technology on the arm of a human surgeon. You'll see if you look at any one of our arms, it has what looks like a shoulder, a wrist, and an elbow. And those things aren't gimmicks. You know, they are there in order to give the surgeon, the surgical team, the same access that they get today if they were performing surgery manually. And of course, there is a gorilla in this market. There is. Da Vinci. I don't know how many robots they've sold, but it must be hundreds. Over 4,000. So you're competing against, I mean, they have a dominant position. In they that. have a monopoly position until last year or so. That business called Intuitive Surgical, phenomenally performing business, worth $55 billion. Mm. And you know, not only is its technology good, but it's performed very, very well and has been the darling of the stock market in the States. And, you know, I think what we're doing is absolutely phenomenal, but we do need to remind ourselves that during the time we've been alive, it's added about $30 billion (laughs) to its market cap. (laughs) But you've learned, of course, clearly much more agile than they are. And you've learned huge amounts from what they've done and what they can't do, I presume. I would not say that, actually, Peter. I would say what we have done, we've done because we have listened very carefully to the marketplace, which in our case is surgeons and healthcare administrators, not just in this country, but mainland Europe and the USA. And it was really clear to them that actually they didn't felt that their needs had yet fully been met by robotics, Hmm. notwithstanding the good job that da Vinci does. Yeah, we believe absolutely there's a requirement for a robot to be used as often as a busy operating room for it to be portable, transportable, able to do many different types of surgery and able to be bought affordably by healthcare systems in this country, in the UK, but also across Europe. And it should be pointed out this is not an autonomous robot. This is a method for the surgeon to actually operate some arms. Correct. This is a human surgeon remaining in control of the procedure from the moment the procedure starts to the moment it finishes surgeon effectively instructs the instruments on the end of those arms how to move by moving surgical hand grips. And how many instruments could there be? So typically there's one instrument which holds the camera and up to another four arms, but we expect most procedures will have what we call two instrument arms and one endoscope arm. Right, okay. So before we go on to all the things you've learnt over this time, can we just go forward through the funding? You got Series B about three years ago now, how much was that? So we did a seed round of approximately $5 million, if you don't mind me talking in dollars, Peter. I don't mind, but I don't mind seed rounds being called $5 million. But it's a good point, actually, because actually, unless we could build a prototype, we couldn't demonstrate anything. So in our case, the seed round had to be that size. Yeah, fine. We then raised a Series A in late 2015 and 2016, which in total was approximately $30 million. Which you brought in some other VCs, didn't you? So we brought in Cambridge Innovation Capital. Uh, we're delighted to have a British investor in the company alongside ABB. ABB being a corporate, of course. ABB yes. being an industrial, in, well, yeah. an industrial automation company, yeah. one of the world's largest. Mm. LGT, which is a very large institutional fund. Based in? Based in Liechtenstein. Okay. And combination of those investors alongside Escala gave us a substantial base on which then to build the company. And then you've just had one more round since then, We've had you? one more round since then, which is our Series B, where we raised actually just over $100 million. That is the largest private raise of any medical device company in Europe. And I think real demonstration of the ambition for a British company to enter this market. It's one of the fastest growing markets in medical devices. A real statement of confidence in what we're doing in the management team, 
and the very talented people we have here. And from whom did that come? So in addition to bringing in a new Chinese investor and another family office in the form of Vartrium, all of the existing investors substantially followed that money. Good. And that for me was absolutely critical. That statement again of, yes, we want to bring in, you know, one, maybe two new shareholders, mm. but it's not that we don't believe in this business. We do believe in this business and we're going to back it significantly. So more than 80% of the Series B monies were raised from the existing investors. Good. They've all got deep pockets and really believe in the business. Yeah. I mean, they've not just got deep pockets. They don't have a timescale. Yeah. They're all patient capital then. They're essentially all patient capital. And that's given us, again, the freedom to build a business very much in the way that it would be being built if it was in Silicon Valley. You know, we're 250 people big now. We today occupy three leases, about to move into a 55,000 square foot building just on the north of Cambridge. That's a significant commitment from any company, any group of shareholders. And how far have you got in terms of development, both technology and market? Well, you had a go earlier, Peter. As far as the technology is concerned, it's what we wanted it to be. Mm. If you'd have come four years ago, I would have introduced you to a wooden arm. (laughs) (laughs) We've moved on a lot since then. And uh, we're now at the stage where... Versus our product will be going into the market in, in a few months' time after we get our CE mark. And for human operations? Yeah. Excellent. So that, of course, is the first, if you like, the first critical milestone of any medical devices company. And we're getting there within no more than a matter of months now. We always built the business to be global, though. So, of course, we have interest from UK hospitals, but we also have from European countries and from the States. So, Martin, just for the listeners, why is your device and the DaVinci's, of course, better than the human being? Good question. Today, if you and I have to have surgery and we found out we're just needing a traumatic intervention, the question is, who do you want to be doing that surgery and how do you want it done? There was a big debate raging in clinical circles probably 30 years ago around the benefits of something called keyhole or minimal access surgery over and above open surgery. Um, That debate today has been won, which is the benefits of minimal access surgery are faster recovery times, fewer complications, less use of opioids, fewer bed days. Mm. So it's one of those medical innovations which is very good for the surgeon, very good for the patient, very good for the hospital. It's essentially a cheaper, it's a cheaper procedure which gets the patient to recovery faster and back home everything we all want. Yes. What I think a lot of people don't understand is that what we call sort of minimal access or, if you like, laparoscopic surgery is phenomenally difficult to do. This is almost like asking you if you can untie and tie your shoelaces with two knitting needles with small graspers and scissors on the end of them. It's very difficult to do. It takes the best surgeons two years to completely master. And you know you've mastered it if you can suture. And the sadness is, is that not all surgeons who go through that training course can actually suture, which is a really important skill. What robotics does is it significantly shortens the learning curve and training for that surgeon. And it gets the vast majority of surgeons to competence much faster. It also, to a great extent, standardises the way in which surgery is done. Because still today, you can get a lot more information on how well your school that you send your child is is performing compared to 
the performance of particular surgeons. How many of us would ask a surgeon how many of a particular procedure had they done before operating on us or our mother? So you just want them to be using the best possible tool to do the job. What a surgical robot does is it gives them better visualisation, it gives them better control of instruments, it gives them better wristed articulated instruments, and it enables them to perform the procedure in a far more ergonomically friendly way. So rather than a surgeon standing above prone doing four or five hours worth of operation in order to perform a particular procedure, today surgeon can do all of that, sitting in front of a 3D screen, sitting down, standing up however they like, take a break. And that's what we built here. And presumably pricing comes in there somewhere because it's an expensive device. Well, whatever. Pricing's absolutely critical yeah. because in the end, a hospital has to compare the cost of a robotic procedure with the cost of that same procedure being done manually. Mm. And we want to add as few dollars, if you like, to that procedure mm. as possible. Mm. So let's talk about growing pains and sure. the future of this business. So it can't all have been easy ride, this can it? No, it's not been for the faint-hearted at all. Yeah, we've been challenged on many fronts. I mean, today we are in, Peter, this is one of seven buildings that we lease in Cambridge. Mm. And you and I know how tight mm. commercial property is in Cambridge. We've never, ever taken a lease to its full term. So landlords must see us coming, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Demand compensation for you yeah. moving out early. Yes, I've been through that. Finding the right people, recruiting them, and then integrating them into this business that has a very particular culture, that is hard. So you've been taking on probably two or three new people a week? I think for the last year, that will be true. Half the company wasn't here last year. Mm. That means we have fantastic people who work in recruitment. Yeah, we're interviewing many people every day. But you have to find the right environment to introduce those people into and you have to induct them well. And all of that, of course, takes time away from your development timelines. So, of course, it's difficult. You know, recruiting you know, technically very, very able people is a different matter from recruiting very good people managers. So, as in any business that's sort of four and a half years old, you get to the stage where actually this is a different business from the one we built four and a half years ago. We're asking ourselves now the questions of, do we have the right structure? Do we have the right processes? We're now a medical device manufacturing business. The word process is part of everyday language and Will sentence. you continue to manufacture, do you think? Or will you outsource? So we do final test assembly integration here in Cambridge. We work with a number of global contract manufacturers on the electromechanical assembly units and then on the instruments. And I think that's a model that will continue for a while. Mm. Okay, a strange question this will be. We look too old to have young kids. Yeah. So have you had any sleepless nights in the last four and a half years? <laughs> and if you have, why? So I have one daughter, she's married now. So, well, now I've paid for her wedding, no more sleepless nights. <laughs> I think the challenge of running any business like this is that you can work every single minute of every single day. The principal challenges for me and for the team all come from the demands of speed, balanced by the need to build a device which is going to be safe. Mm. At the end of the day, we have to assume that this is going to be used on our children, on our parents, and we take that very, very seriously. But speed to market in any startup is one of the keys. And previously, I've been involved in lots of businesses that were too early. We find ourselves entering this market at probably its most interesting time. So the market pull is strong? The market pull is very strong. Good. So, yeah, the sleepless nights have come from, you know, how to find the next set of investors 
questions of where should we allocate our resources. At the moment, I'm spending a lot of time outside of this country, you know, banging the drum for robotics and for CMR in the States and in China. Yeah. So how do you allocate your time between building the business on the ground here and evangelizing, essentially, around the world? So before we go on to a few tips for entrepreneurs, can you just get your crystal ball out and look forward three, four or five years yeah. for this business and tell me what you can see? I think we'll be a substantial employer in the Cambridge area. We already employ 250 people here. I would expect us to double in size. So happy landlords in Cambridge start. um... (laughs) Happy employees as well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) That growth, of course, will come mostly now in non-engineering functions. That's the other challenge of building a business like this, which is that it's actually relatively easy on the global scale to recruit world-class engineers from Cambridge. We need to employ world-class people across commercial clinical training marketing functions and we're needing to go further afield to recruit those people so we already have a subsidiary in america in india in italy we've always thought global from day one and you know to grow a business that we absolutely expect will be worth billions you have to do that Mm. and so in terms of market adoption have you got to you'd like to have two percent of the market in five years or Uh, 20 percent or so we believe that the market for robots in the end is in the tens of thousands. Today, there are approximately 4,000 robots installed in the world. We believe that we can become one of the no more than three, four companies selling devices in that space. And I absolutely expect us to be selling hundreds of systems per year. Yeah, yeah. And that, in the end, critically means thousands of procedures and it means thousands of patients' lives. Mm, brilliant. Okay. You're very ambitious and you've got something that's really on the route to something very successful. So have you got any tips for entrepreneurs on this route, on your many routes, actually, over the years? Yeah, I have. I think, first of all, I'm now 55. In fact, the company was incorporated on my birthday in 2014. So I I know exactly how old I was (laughs) when this business was started. So the first notable point is, you know, I wasn't 25. And I think that means to be able to bring a lot of learning Mm. to the point where you can bring that learning to your co-founders, to investors, is really important. I think for me, yeah, we are doing this because the market needs it. Yeah, we didn't do this because we came up with a clever piece of technology and then built a product out of it and then sought to find customers. It was very much the other way around with us. There was a clear unmet need and we had built a product to fill Mm. that need. So provided we built a product to the spec that... We had an awful lot of validation early on in the business. We were very confident that we would be able to sell that product. And make a margin, of course, because well, you critical. can't possibly sell on price. In devices, you have to be able to make a gross margin of 65%. Is that the number? Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, that is the golden number in medical yes. devices. Okay. So going back to lessons, I think as entrepreneurs, where is our limitation? Our limitation always is time, actually. Everybody thinks oh, your limitations are money or it's people. Actually, time is the scarce resource here. And if you're going to spend time working on solving a problem, find the biggest possible problem you can to solve. Mm. You know, for us, that means millions of patients around the world. But if we put a solution into the world market to address that problem, we will build a big business. We'll have spent the same amount of time on doing this that somebody else deciding to build a business that will be ultimately worth you know, a few millions of pounds. For us, if we build a business worth a few millions of pounds, we will have failed. Mm. And have you got time pressure for competitors as well? Yeah, we do. Yeah, the biggest devices companies in the world are seeking to get into this market. So that's an imperative on us, as well as investment imperative. But with an overriding sort of break on this, if you like, that, you know, whatever you have to do, you have to do it safely and as well as possible. 
So firstly, you know, find the biggest problem that you can and then go very fast. I think it's more important to worry about how big the cake is than how big your slice of that cake is. We know that as entrepreneurs, that if we make the cake as big as possible, then many people will win. Yes, and you have a great social outcome here as well. It's not just money. It isn't just us. Of course, I'm absolutely of the opinion that you have to raise as much money as possible when you can raise it. Um, We've managed to do that time and time again. Next thing I would say is find people who are not like you. Okay. So, yeah, I'm one of a number of founders in this business. We all hold to the same sort of humble ambition, if you like, of getting this kit ultimately out into the market. But we're not alike. We bring different skill sets and emotionally we are different. And I absolutely subscribe to that, whether it be at the executive level, at the board level. You know, we're in the process of adding non-executive directors to our board at the moment. We are absolutely looking for people who have got different experiences and who are not like us. There's a little challenge here, yeah, yeah, of course. That is absolutely critical. And then I think in a global business, you have to realise that you yourself are part of the brand of the company that you're building. You know, for somebody who started off as a sort of Mancunian accountant, self-effacing, that's a challenge. Because if this business were in Silicon Valley, we wouldn't have been shouting loud enough three to four years ago. Now the challenge is for us to build this business on a global scale, representing the values that are absolutely ours and that we ascribe to here. But nonetheless, that challenge is out. It's not in this building. It's not in this country. Mm. So now the challenge for us becomes, you know, how do you simultaneously tell that story on the global stage whilst making sure that the business is built properly and managed internally? That's just the next challenge. I think also be prepared to help people. From time to time, I've had breakfast with other local entrepreneurs, local business leaders in Cambridge. Yeah, the rules for breakfast are you talk about everything, but it stays at the breakfast table. Mm. I think that's really valuable because they're not in the business and therefore they're not going to undermine you in that business. But finding other people who are going on a similar journey, who you can learn from, has been very, very important to me. Even if it's just simply to enable you to vent about what's frustrating you. I think it's really, really important. Finally, I would say at sort of the age I am now, you know, to build a global business and to do it from Cambridge, you actually need to be fit enough to do it. In terms of air miles or? You need to be physically fit enough to do it. You know, I travel a lot these days. I absolutely love this business and I love what I do. But I think physical health and mental health are absolutely critical to me being able to do this job. There is one final tip, which is, For entrepreneurs, co-founders, I think you really need to ask yourself what sort of a business you want to build and to be honest about it. Because most people say they want to start a business, but actually they don't define that in terms of longevity. You know, are you actually trying to build a business to license technology and sell a business in the early days? Or actually are you looking to build a prototype, get it into market and sell a business? We've taken the very bold decision that we're building a medical devices manufacturing business here, and that has no timescale. But that then leads to all sorts of other consequences about tying people in, about expected capital returns for investors and founders. So I think it's really, really critical that founders ask themselves and are honest with themselves about what sort of a business, what business model are they pursuing. Excellent, Martin. That has been very, very interesting. I've learnt a huge amount from you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. 
You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. Investor.